And by the time that I got to high school, you know, it was already a, a majority black high school. And I definitely felt like there is something to learn from black America that you're not going to learn if you're just stuck in white America. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot to learn from either walking through uh, some of these neighborhoods that you might not be living in. There's a lot to learn in, like he, he talks a lot in the book about this idea that, you know, there's white people that want to hang out with you, but they don't want to, they don't want to sit with you and eat, right? They don't want to be uh, seen with you in this kind of, um, you know, in this kind of dynamic. And I remember like consciously thinking of that in high school when I read the book and I was like, I I'm going to make an effort to make sure that the friends that I hang out with, I would actually sit down with them. And I remember like, for instance, like being in, in the cafeteria and I would sit down specifically with, with the black kids at the black table. And I would always be, I would say like 99% of the time, I would be the only white person there. And I remember just like making an effort, like, you know, this is a somewhat new environment for me. It's different, but you gotta have to deal with it, you know, get over the discomfort, go through it. Uh, and eventually like, it'll be fine. Hi, everyone. I have a pretty special episode of Artifact today. We're going to be doing this book, Aldrich Cleaver's Soul and Ice. I am joined by Keith Jackowicz. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same edition from when I first read it. And the reason why I'm doing it is October 2023 is going to be the 20 year anniversary of my having read it. And it seems kind of weird, I'm guessing, for most people to to uh, be able to be so specific with dates as far as reading uh, any book. In my case, it is a book that actually just totally changed my life. I very much view my life as a little less now, but you know, maybe like the first 10 years or so after the fact, I always kind of viewed my life as this is before I read the book and this is my life after reading the book. And that's because when you look at most people's reading habits, especially those that have like any sort of either writerly or intellectual output, you know, they say things like, I, I, I don't have a specific incident or a book that changed me. I just noticed that I was reading from a young age and little by little, I read more and more and more. And my life just kind of opened up in that regard. But for me, it was the opposite. I rarely read before reading this book. And after I read it, I just like took a week off from, I was in high school at the time. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go to school for the next week. I was lucky enough that I could just not go to class and nobody really asked any questions. And I went to the library, picked up a, a bunch of books, uh, went through them. And um, it used to take me months and months to get through a single book. And after that, it, it was much faster. So, and I mean, th there might be different reasons for it, right? Eldridge Cleaver, of course, he was a, a member of the Black Panther Party. He wasn't exactly a co-founder, but by the time that he became Minister of Information, he was one of the three uh, sort of like top figureheads. And mm -hmm. he had a, both a weird and kind of like telling life that we're going to get into. Uh, the book itself has this kind of, um, it, it's sort of a patchwork in the sense that uh, on the one hand, he could be an excellent writer in other sections of the book. It's just terrible. I feel like there's a lot to discuss. And Keith, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, has not read it prior to 
this show. So this is his first time reading it. And maybe we could get into your impressions of the book as an adult reading it now. You know, I, I've heard you talk about it before. I know the name of Eldridge Cleaver, but I never really delved that deeply into him uh, or any of his work. Uh, it, it was an odd book to read because there are times where he'll really just get on a roll and he'll be putting out something that's like really, you know, pretty interesting and well-written, certainly has a lot more passion and fire and uh, lyrical dexterity than most le ostensibly leftist writing of any era, which is pretty notorious for being turgid and obfuscatory and just, you know, really dull and boring to read, even if you think it contains important information. You know, he was doing stuff that he was trying to communicate ideas on a more like kinesthetic and uh, visceral level than a lot of left-wing rhetoric usually does. And so there are passages that are really interesting. And then there are, there, there's, he, but then he gets off on these tangents because he is obsessed with this sort of like ersatz black masculinity that he's like trying to construct as the 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 demiurge of the movement that he wants to build this uh black men reclaiming something uh, of their masculinity that has been stolen from them systematically by the white race and 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 his obsession with that leads him to both just like cringeworthy passages, you know, where it just feels like he's waving his dick around, as well as, and we'll get into this, uh, her pretty horrific homophobia against uh, James Baldwin in one extended sequence in the book. A and also, he sometimes gets himself into trouble as well because his sort of infatuation with his, his rhetorical ability and, and his ability to flourish his writing you know that like you said it's like this uh performative blackness like uh i said to her sister i said you know it's like this kind of and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with using components of black speech in writing but the way that he does it juxtaposed against the you know would-be literary qualities of other sections of the book so he's he's like constantly stepping on his own toes you know even in passages that are otherwise well written there will often be a, a sentence that that clangs or has an obvious cliche because he, this isn't this wasn't a purely literary work. It was a piece of political polemic as well. And so he probably felt like he had to include, you know, say, uh, cliches of everyday speech that might resonate with people or he wasn't laser like focused on trying to eliminate those things from the writing. And so it's just a it's an odd jumble of brilliance and gibberish and i i it's not surprising that he went on to have the rather colorful and and pointless life that he seems to have lived uh after after this book was written because he doesn't see he he's not really grounded in anything very rigorous it's kind of just all coming from his from his gut and you could argue that that you know it is uh reflecting his philosophy of the 
uh, super masculine menial and the omnipotent administrator, the black man as the body and the white man as the mind. And so his writing it is a body that is, you know, seeking a mind that it has not, you know, had access to for a very long time. And so it's structurally recreating his point and maybe that's rhetorically effective but as a but just as an as an artifact as a found object it makes it just more bizarre to read than anything else kind of pleasurable it's short it's easy to read it's much easier to read than a lot of leftist uh, stuff from that era or any other era but it you you mostly walk away from it thinking that it's just it's a relic of a moment that will probably never present itself in the same way again and i can't imagine that it would have a lot of relevance to any contemporary leftists of any color because of because of these qualities yeah when i think back to well what was it specifically about this book that uh, had the kind of effect that it had on me um First of all, I'm not sure if like any other kind of book would have done that trick in that way. Perhaps uh, I could have been similarly affected by Malcolm X's autobiography. And it's one of those things where uh, Malcolm X's book is, uh, I think, is an objectively superior book overall. And yet, absolutely. And and, and yet, you know, if uh, it's one of those things where if you're already just kind of like so affected by something else to begin with, your threshold for having some kind of transformational experience tends to get higher and higher and higher, right? Like I, I would not be right now in the position very easily to read something that would totally change the trajectory of my life simply because I've already had many of these experiences, not just mm-hmm. with uh, Eldridge Cleaver, but uh, books after the fact as well. And I think, you know, I like to keep an open mind. There's definitely s- stuff that I come across now where, uh, uh, an opinion that I might have just totally changes. And, and and it's not one of those things where I get defensive about it. Instead, it's kind of like, oh, wow, this is a new way of thinking about this. Now this opens up new avenues for something I might do in a book, something I might put in an essay. So if anything, I, I, I view these kinds of things as pretty transformational. But back in 2003, when I was in high school, um, it also came on the heels of uh, first of all, a rap album uh, titled Soul and Ice. It's a 1996 album by this rapper named Raskaz. And it has a similar kind of d- dynamic where there's like a mix of stuff that is is pretty cringeworthy and over the top and silly um, and sexist and, and racist and all this other stuff. But at the same time, there's enough good there where you, you start thinking, especially as a teenager, well, there seems to be some sort of like possibility uh, for artistic expression in the arts. And even if this isn't like the be all end all, this is an example of something that one might do. Same thing with Cleaver's political writing. Uh, to your point, most political writing, especially at the time, you know, it's just kind of like stuff that's either dripping in cliches or it's very, uh, it's 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 not something that could easily hit you very hard. Like I remember for a long time, just like seeking out Hugh P. Newton's book, Revolutionary Suicide, which like in the library system in New York City, all the copies that existed, they were either lost or stolen. And eventually I was able to like come across a copy. And I remember reading it and just being kind of disappointed, not even so much because of the kind of like, I guess, informational content, but more so because of the fact that 
it was just like much more plain, right? It was much more prosaic. It was it was just like much more purely informational. Whereas uh, a book like Soul and Ice, even though it was like, I, like even back then I could tell that it was kind of flawed, not so much in the writerly perspective, but flawed. Because I mean, look, if, you, if you're like a, a teenager in New York City in the early 2000s, you're, you, you can't read some of the stuff that he says about homosexuals and not immediately like dismiss it out of hand, right? You just kind of like would uh, simply because it's already, you know, it's like way past past that point. And I remember just kind of like chalking it up to like, well, you know, this is a, a black male who just, who was in prison at the time in the 60s, right? He's going, he has a high chance of just being homophobic. That's just how it is, right? There's mm-hmm. this kind of like odd conservatism within black America that doesn't necessarily play out in the same way that uh, that like mainstream style conservatism in America for like white people might play out. And I, mm-hmm. I, I wonder what you think about um, this kind of like whole idea of, it feels like anybody that was like really far uh, on the revolutionary left, whether it's even like now, honestly, or or back in the day, there was always this veneer of social conservatism as well. There might have been like some elements of like, I don't know, like free love or like whatever else, like in some segments. But I noticed, for instance, uh, like when I first like started doing like political type activism or whatever in high school, I came across uh, the the Bob Avakian Party, Revolutionary Communist Party, and all the the people. Whenever I'd meet people from that group, yeah, I, they they would always be just like totally homophobic. And Avakian himself had like all these like weird homophobic essays, like well into the nineties or maybe even the the early two thousands. So there was always this kind of like very weird distrust of uh sexuality in the sense that they would they would say stuff like you know if if we have like a communist revolution and we have like perfect equality then homosexuality which is just capitalist decadence would die out and you know like it was it was silly then and it's silly now but like what, what do you think about this odd strain of conservatism within the book and maybe like more broadly in, in leftist movements especially like the further left that you go oddly enough I will say that when it comes to historical leftists, there is some some leeway that you can give them because they did not have access to all of the scientific and anthropological data that we now have that shows that it's, you know, it's not necessarily born this way, but it's basically a fixed aspect of your character, your sexuality. It's not something that you can exert conscious control over. And it's not something that, uh, it's not something that can be changed, uh, nor would the methods to change it be particularly humane. And they, they couldn't look at the anthropological record in as much depth and see, oh, there's been lots of indigenous societies, which are ostensibly the kind of societies that we're trying to recreate the, you know, the patterns of in a post-industrial context uh, where uh, homosexuality and gender nonconformity and other things were, uh, you know, pretty, pretty common and not policed, especially uh, harshly in a lot of those societies. So it's a certain amount of ignorance, I guess, could be ascribed to it. But I think if you're, it, Things that are outside the ken of class specifically are, are often seen as foiling uh, the, the class war. 
You know, you see a lot of leftists now, like, you know, that there's a lot of annoying uh, patterns that you see in media around issues of race and gender and sexuality and things like that. But that doesn't make that one subreddit that was the stupid, stoop ID Paul, stupid mm-hmm. Paul. Uh, I mean, that doesn't, you know, excuse the often pretty thinly veiled like racism and sexism and things like that, that you could observe pretty palpably on that website, you know, but they, they sort of got it in their head. Like, you know, if we have to litigate all of this stuff at the same time as we're trying to fight the class war, then it's going to be used to divide us, you know, we have to work with the tools that we have uh, and the tools that we have just happens to be a, you know, multi-century construction of the nuclear family and heterosexual pair bonding. And so anything that tries to challenge that is just, just going to get in the way. And it's, it's not part of, of our liberatory project, you know? So I, 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 I would say that the conservative elements that you are identifying as having been on the left and maybe further to the left, I would say that's not as true nowadays, I mean, you do have some pretty hardcore Marxists that will talk negatively about homosexual and transgender people nowadays, but that's not, that, that there's not really a lot of support in the community for that anymore. I, I, I would say it's mostly been chased out at this point. The people that have those kinds of impulses and inclinations, they're basically like quasi-fascist intellectuals now, I would say. They've kind of gone because if that's the thing that is the most important to you uh that then you're going to probably not go towards the left nowadays and you could just be uh an alexander dugan or someone in that kind of you know i'm i've got a new kind of fascism and it's better and it's not going to go bad like the last one did kind Mm -hmm. of right-wing intellectual or like nick land or people like that there i mean there there is this like post-left movement now as well so of people that basically say, okay, I've read and imbibed the critiques of Marx and I agree with some of them, but ultimately what the things that I value, like traditional family or whatever bullshit, uh, is not being met by the left. So I'm like kind of a Republican, but I'm also critical of the Republicans and I read Marx and I talk about Marx and, and you see some of that on that, uh, you know, the, the internet has made things a lot more, uh, fractal and bespoke. And so it's if the left gives you shame for your uh for your homophobia or whatever it's a lot easier than it ever was to just flake off of it also because the left is no longer composed of uh organizations pursuing concrete projects as much as it is basically just an intellectual subculture at this point so there you're not really losing anything if you flake off of the left the way that you would have been if you had been like engaged in building unions and doing revolutionary actions or plotting bombings or whatever so it's the the stakes are not as high that the left has to like account for and build in space for people that have like more socially conservative views as, as it as it used to what do you think about the idea of um because i'm not sure exactly what your impressions were of the black panthers prior to like you know coming into adult consciousness but uh, i'm guessing one of the reasons why the book had an effect on me was it really just made me kind of like rethink some of my underlying assumptions here because i, I had just always assumed that 
and this was like just kind of like I guess filtered down through pop culture or maybe even stuff that I would listen uh, and hear in rap music where it seemed to me as if like the Black Panthers were if not the equivalent of something like the, the KKK at least just like the idea of like well they were black nationalists or separatists uh their whole idea revolved around black superiority um blacks and whites can't live you know amongst one another that kind of segregationist streak and when i read it it, it was very obvious kind of like from the beginning well well no this is actually uh going to be some sort of marxist group and then i started researching like yes it was a kind of you know you can't call it a traditional marxist leninist group but a well, traditional they were, they were maoist i think was kind of their preferred uh preferred stable of uh of marx or preferred variety of marxist leninism i believe well yeah there, there was there was some identification there in the sense of like i mean like cleaver himself uh he was uh, i'm not sure if he was ever in uh north korea i i i think one of his daughters was uh, born in north korea but uh he was getting money from north korea uh there was always this idea of uh this kind of class struggle right if it comes to like black class struggle or whatnot uh there's going to be some overlap with a lot of like asian class struggle or a class struggle that would in, emerge in africa which is going to be you know maybe because of the kind of uh, uh countryside sort of dynamic in a lot of places maoist maoist in principle but uh like still traditional in the sense that they believed in in a vanguard party right it was not mm -hmm. some sort you know it was not some sort of like a, a anarchist collective of you know everything is distributed everything is decentralized the idea was that the black panthers uh, wanted to be the marxist vanguard not just for black america but for all workers within the united states and mm -hmm. i remember just like sitting back and thinking well what is it about me or what is it about culture like whatever that just left me with this assumption that they were a totally different kind of group versus what they actually were um and i mean that that, that is like one thing to think about like so like did, did did you prior to like really like reading about this kind of stuff did you have any impressions on the black panthers that were like i guess different from reality or what uh yeah i mean i think the only I, I, prior to, I mean, really prior, because I, I, I was kind of just a regular shit lib until 2016, basically. I think mm -hmm. the, the, the election of Trump really did sort of shatter a lot of uh, verities that I held very closely about, like the way that society was and then progress and you know what what is actually happening. And so it really opened me up to reading a lot of perspectives that I had previously dismissed as like total failures. I mean, I don't. I, I I I don't exactly know what I would call myself because I, I I sort of pull from a lot of different leftist traditions, but I have I find aspects of all of them interesting or and potentially useful or worth combing through. Uh, but I so prior to that, I've really never researched the Black Panthers all that much, and I think probably in Forrest Gump, uh, his girl that he is you know, in love with, you know, longingly wants to be with for most of his life. She falls in with uh, a Black Panther during the portion of the movie that is in the 1970s. And they all just seem like a bunch of anti-white assholes in that movie. One mm -hmm. of the most popular <laughs> reactionary texts of the 1990s, I think you would have to call Forrest Gump. Uh, and, you know, just sort of ambient 
depictions in like like I like I remember in history class in high school when you would get to like the 1960s I feel like I remember the Black Panthers being mentioned and they didn't really talk about like the class aspect of it it was more like the black nationalist or separatist or black supremacist aspects and the thing is like it's not untrue to say that these were like elements that existed in like a big party like that because that's just the nature of a party you yeah, know of course you're, it did, you're yeah. a bunch of people together you're gonna have some cranks in there you know and cranks can ascend into i mean this guy is a, is a crank mm-hmm. i mean i think it's clear that he's a, <laughs> a huge crank but i you you don't get the story that they were really like they were actively trying to filter out the cranks like they were trying to come up with a but they were uh, consciously trying to come up with a better political line and ultimately the fact that they attracted such attention from the uh, intelligence and security states it has to tell you that there was like some kind of potential in what they were doing mm-hmm. you know because if they were really as clownish and and awful as the as the his mainstream historical record would have them to be then there would be no reason not to just let them you know be the like repugnant face of leftism in america or whatever you know there would be i mean because the, the nation of islam was not similarly targeted you know the nation of islam is still around and kicking and 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 basically the it, it doesn't have as much cultural purchase as it did in the 1960s but it's still around i was walking around manhattan uh like a few months ago and there was a bunch of uh like like nation of islam guys on the sidewalk just like yelling at every white person that walked past them so it, it, wait, it, wait what, what were they saying oh I, I i i i don't remember i wasn't paying attention but i just could like every Everybody that walked by, they were like heckling and like, look at this guy, you know, this this white man right, you know, right here kind of stuff. Uh, and so, and that, that, so that's he, that's honestly probably why they were not uh, targeted at least as much because it's like, you know, eventually uh, you you can be allowed to like implode upon yourself, and it does become essentially like little more than this joke. It's like, yeah, I saw some nation of Islam guys; they were just like in a corner yelling at random white people. You know, it's like, and and I asked you, what do they say? And you're like, I don't even know. I wasn't paying attention. It's like you know better than to pay attention, right, yeah. to this thing that's no, it, become a kind of joke. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it seems like the. Black Panther Party was the space where the 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 tension that exists between like the the struggles for racial reconciliation and the desire for like a, a class-based politics could potentially have been worked out. I mean, I think Maoism is kind of insane, so I think they would have had to drop that eventually if they were really going to get anywhere cuz I mean, Maoism is basically like the Marxism of a uh, of a mostly peasant society, and you know, there's that Matt Chrisman bit about how uh, Americans kind of live in the same psychic space as French peasants from the 19th century, just like a pro- a processed version of Marx's uh, sack of potatoes. But uh, I, I mean, other than but other than that sort of like metaphorical similarity, the conditions. You know, we're, we're not anything like that. So that wasn't going to, like, you can't, even if it would be, like, satisfying to treat Black people as a class, as, like, an internal peasantry uh, of uh, of America, I mean, 
if you're using the Marxist system, they're clearly a mix of proletarians and lumpen proletarians, you know, like you have to deal with them on those terms. You you, you can't treat it like an internal peasantry because you, your project's just going to get fucked up trying to work like that. So I, I, I don't, maybe there's a, a, a more efficacious version of the party that develops into a superior force for achieving a better world in the absence of the security state meddling with them and basically doing everything they can to break them up or maybe they were just doomed to failure either way because marxism in america just doesn't really have any any purchasing power in a country with such a large and consumerist middle class that probably would have to see like a hit to its quality of life for a more egalitarian world to exist so i i don't know i i i think there are more interesting groups certainly than the uh, mainstream narrative uh, around them would have it though yeah I, I consumed a lot of Black Panther literature uh, in high school after this book. Um, and I mean, there there is something called the new Black Panther Party, which I don't know if it's defunct at this point, but I remember like 20 years ago researching them and they seem to actually live up to some of those like Forrest Gump stereotypes mm -hmm. that uh, we heard about. And maybe that's actually part of the reason, at least why, you know, people like uh, maybe have that impression. Uh, but to to your idea of like, well, did the state sort of view them as a threat because they really did try to make them implode? I'm not sure how true this is, but I did hear that the California laws about open carry changed specifically because of Black Panther Party activities. Like, for example, one of the main things they did pretty much from the beginning of the foundation was uh, they did these armed patrols and they were supposed to be kind of, you know, patrols against um, uh, you know, police and police brutality, that sort of thing. So they do these like armed patrols. They would be like Black Panthers, like literally like imagine just like a big group of black men walking around with shotguns. It is just innately going to be uh, quite uh, intimidating to a lot of white people, especially in the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. We have this sort of idea in our heads that the Second Amendment, um, when we think of its applications and the kinds of things that happen uh normally it seems to me as if like you have white faces in mind when you think of stuff like that but realistically right open carry like you could have groups like this and it would be intimidating to uh, a lot of white people observing it so that's part of it another part of it is like just being a marxist group of course uh, at the time right we had you know it wasn't like peak mccarthyism or anything but still uh, there's this idea that there's a you we know had co a, pro at the time yeah so. so we you know we have like a geopolitical rival anything that resembles us even a little bit right we're going to have an overreaction you have an overreaction domestically you're going to have overreactions internationally i mean like imagine like it's still kind of crazy to me think about that we did have an invasion of grenada right because we so we so feared we so feared a coup in Grenada that uh, this was uh, this was worth actually a military action, um, and, and so one of those things I guess that like when you have like Black Panthers speaking at the time, there is something to the idea that you know there is a kind of like fakeness to American style liberalism in the sense that liberalism is only as good as first of all uh, domestically right liberals tend to treat. Um, you know, for instance, like American citizens better than they would treat anybody abroad, right? It's, it could be liberalism mm -hmm. and free speech for you, whereas everybody else might get bombs. At the same time, if the state, for whatever reason, either rightly or wrongly, starts to perceive that there is 
a, a credible threat somewhere. Free speech and and stuff and liberal values go out the window. I mean, like World War II, obviously, right? We had literal uh, ethnicity based internment. Uh, we had, um, I mean, even to this day, if you like, mm-hmm. I, I said the story before, but when I got my citizenship, I remember one of the questions that was asked, and it's a question that still exists. The question is, uh, are you or have you been a member of the Communist Party of the USA in the last 10 years? Dude, I, I, when I went to my wife's uh, citizenship test and I realized they that still they have still it. had that question yeah. on there, I like shit myself. Like, are you kidding me? And there's no there's no other analogous question, right? There is something specifically yeah. about, you know, it, it could be just kind of like they never because like most people would say no, because it's like, who the hell even joins the Communist Party, right? But at the same mm-hmm. time, the fact that it's this holdover and they didn't bother to change it, despite the fact that I'm sure if you challenge it in a court of law, right, like it would be deemed unconstitutional. You can't fucking ask some shit like that. Um, but at the same time, it's like nobody really cares enough to do so. And it, it like I guess people would really forget, right? Especially if you weren't uh, alive during that time, uh, it, it really was seen as this kind of credible threat. So it, my my mind just kind of goes automatically to like, well, if we ever reach some kind of stage where there is some other credible threat, liberalism is going to behave how it behaved 50, 60 years ago. We're going to get the same erosion of rights. We're going to have to deal with the same problems and the kind of narratives about like, you know, liberalism is actually well, false. I mean, and Black Panther is my proffer. We deal with them again. Yeah, just I mean, just look at after 9-11, you know, yeah. the kinds of indignities and outright violation of rights that were tolerated uh, towards Muslims, you know, mm-hmm. in, in both, at, both at home and abroad. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the Democratic Party lined up behind George W. Bush for the fucking war in Iraq, the same as everybody else. It's, it's, it's crazy to me how, like... Uh, even like five, 10 years after 9-11, you had stuff like, uh, you had like stuff in Fox News, like stop the madrasa, right? It was like, it was like in New York City there, I forget where it was. There was like some sort of like Muslim school opening up. And there were like all these like people like, 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 deal, like they stopped it. I think they got it stopped. Yeah. I don't even remember exactly, exactly what happened was, or where they, it was. They wanted to build a mosque that had like a, uh, like a Sunday school or a, or a, an Islamic school mm-hmm. or something inside of, I, I believe. And it was about 20 blocks away from uh, the World Trade Center. So yeah, yeah, they're calling it disrespectful. Like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? I, I got into an extended argument on Facebook with this right-wing guy that I was socially forced to interact with because we were both in a community theater production of, 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 a, of a comedic take on Shakespeare. Uh, and he just kept saying, it says in Islam, where you conquer, build a mosque. They're trying to conquer us from inside. And mm-hmm. it's just like, you did, I mean, do you really think, I mean, A, do you think that like all Islam is a monolith? Like, do you think these Muslims that are trying to operate in new, in liberal blue ass New York City believe the same things as Al Qaeda? And that they are they are building this mosque out of solidarity to the act taken by Al Qaeda on September 11th, 2001. Like, but people really think this. I mean, people. Once you give people a concrete other to react against, there is a part in their brains that just reorganizes all of reality around that, and they can make themselves believe ridiculous things in pursuit of that. Just. 
just on, I can't, I cannot tell you it was like hours of this argument and him just basically spamming the same thing. And I was like, Hey, first of all, show me like, show me in the Quran or the Hadiths where it says that. I mean, like somebody told you that this is a tenet of Islam. It's, it's like you didn't do the research yourself. And secondly, I, I don't know. I don't want to relitigate this argument I had like 10 years ago, but it is, I mean, the, the point is that this is a, a possibility that is baked into liberalism, whether of the left wing or the right wing varieties that we have here in America, because liberalism is ultimately about about the self as the basic unit of consideration and analysis. And so stuff that happens to people that you don't identify with as being like yourself are always going to be more expendable. They are always going to be e easier to have uh, travesties inflicted upon them. And it's funny how quickly a lot of these arguments just like die out and they're seen, you know, for the absurdity uh, that they are. I mean, just like this idea that we have like all these like Catholic schools and whatnot, but uh, a Muslim school is unacceptable. I mean, in my neighborhood right now, they just finished building a uh, a pretty big uh, Islamic school and it looks like it's going to feature like kids, you know, from elementary school all the way through high school and not only is it big but it's like wow you know this thing looks beautiful like all the i, I see like i look inside i see like all the basketball hoops and courts and they're they're big it's like wow how do you have like space and how do you have money to do that you know, I, th I think going forward right you're going to have a kind of like similar level of um in the same way that we have you know so many synagogues and jewish schools and whatnot uh a similar amount of funding is going to just like filter down to america and simply because like I, I don't really see for instance our alliances uh, shifting with you know saudi arabia or whatever in the foreseeable future um all this money is just going to like filter through in, in, through different avenues and it's going to be seen as like very american to accept it and very american to support it and you know like uh, like I, I remember like back in 2016 uh during the peak of like the fears about trump and concentration camps and you know anti-immigrant sentiment i was like with all with all these figures like richard spencer or whatever i was like i remember i told you this soon after the election i was like this is like the dying gasp of specifically this kind of you know overt orientation you know this is going to be you know all that stuff that i would maybe read about and be uh, cautious about you know the american history x type of like over the top racism um it was like all fantastical like it was all kind of in my mind in the early 2000s then trump came to power i was like there, there there's no way that this would really have the kind of resurgence like it, ha it has to be packaged in some other kind of way so um just just going forward right i feel like there's going to be some realignments happening what do you what do you think about in in the book uh there's this very odd kind of dynamic going on where on the one hand eldridge cleaver is he's like skeptical of white people in uh like black politics or getting like you know invested in black issues but at the same time it seems like many of the white writers writing about race that he like proffers as like examples of either good writing or thoughtful or something, you know, worth considering. A lot of it I would consider to be like really over the top, like poser shit. 
Uh, oh, good. absolutely. Yeah, that Norman Mailer thing. He keeps yeah, like the, back. yeah, 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 yeah. Like Norman Mailer, for instance, like he's really into uh, Cleaver's very really into the essay by Norman Mailer, Mailer called "The White Negro," which is like. It's such it's it's such a bad essay. Not only just like writing like sense by sense is just horrible, but there's really no ideas that I could latch onto in any way. Like like if, if maybe it was something that was considered revolutionary in some way when it was written, but there's no way that a modern person reading that would come away uh, feeling good. And he even highlights this is on page ninety four um, when he's going through like uh, I guess the beat generation or whatnot. He's he's highlighting this passage from Jack uh, Kerouac's On the Road as he, he calls it remarkable. And the passage is, at lilac evening, I walked with every muscle aching among the lights of the 27th and Welton in the Denver colored section, wishing I were a Negro, feeling that the best the white world had offered was not enough ecstasy for me, not enough life, joy, kicks, darkness, music, not enough night. I wish I were a Denver Mexican or even a poor overworked, uh, I'm going to say because it's here, gap. anything but what I so drearily was, a white man disillusioned. All my life I'd had white ambitions. I passed the dark porches of Mexican and Negro homes. Soft voices were there. Occasionally the dusky knee of some mysterious sensual gal. Uh, the dark faces of the man behind Rose Arbor's. Little children sat like sages in ancient rocking chairs. Now, I don't, he doesn't comment on it further. So I don't know if he calls it remarkable because it sort of tells you something about a certain white psyche or whether he uh, agrees with it. I mean, to his credit, he does, he does like at the beginning at least have like some words about the kind of uh, almost like orientalization of black experience um and, and like black and soul food or whatever he's like you know we should get some some of the bourgeoisie to subsist on soul food and see how quickly they die from it but um like what, what, what do you think about this kind of odd strain in cleaver where he seems to be like resistant to this thing and yet at the same time he's embracing what you and i would call like the ultimate like white poser in the case of norman mailer specifically I haven't read very much Mailer, but it's my understanding that he was thought of in his day and still is as kind of a more masculine novelist as, as someone who was yeah who like stabbed his wife very very like the kind of like the kind of like yeah. fixation of well, masculinity like the way that it comes out it's so crazy. I, I, well, but if you look at Cleaver's own life, I mean, yeah, exactly, the, same, same. Certainly, certainly some. You know, there might be a, a deeper frequency on which these guys are connecting than uh, mm -hmm. uh, than just the pure ideational uh, frequency. Uh, in the case of Jack Kerouac, it seems like he does both like it and also think that it's telling from what, because I, I, I feel like there's more than one spot in the book where he praises Jack Kerouac mm -hmm. and the Beats as transformative figures and yeah, you know, Allen Ginsberg has some some good poems, but the other almost everything written by the Beats just does not hold up that well. It has to, it has to be said. On the mm -hmm. Road by Jack Kerouac is one of the most boring wannabe thinks it's poetic, but is mostly just gibberish kind of books that you can read. Uh, Burroughs was just like out of his mind and trying trying to describe like his own experience of drugs and pretend that it was uh you know some deep wordsmithing project that he was engaged in uh i don't know i mean because i mean ultimately at this point in his life he 
is I mean he's he is thinking of himself as an intellectual and an aesthetic as much as he's thinking of himself as a political actor. I mean, you wouldn't write this book this way if you weren't trying to plug into a community that probably gave him a lot of comfort when he was in jail. You know, this there's not a lot of beauty in jail, but they let you have books and there is beauty in some books, you know. So he I I I see it as him kind of trying to take one thing that gave him comfort in one kind of way and plug it into this other thing that he's gotten interested in and pretend that it's actually the embodiment of something that's important to his political project. You know, these the, these weren't a bunch of white posers uh, flopping around and doing drugs and, and whatnot. These were the uh, first stirrings of a new... Uh, kind of mixed black and white racial performance that we're all going to be uh, exhibiting in the future. These were the the first stirrings of the crossing of the streams, uh, you know, the, 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 the first burblings of segregation being destroyed and people, uh, you know, finally tearing down these, the, these cultural walls that have separated them for so long. And it, although it is funny that he find something liberating about that idea and in the last decade we have spilled so much ink about these like the, the exact opposite this sort of territoriality around uh black culture and black folkways uh being adopted by white people you know it seems like the temperature has gone down on that a little bit in the last few years i i haven't seen somebody going on a hate-filled rant about like a white guy with dreadlocks in the in the last few years you don't see as much talk about cultural appropriation and the like it seems like that was either too much or people realized that they were focusing on it too much or whatever but i mean certainly if you were to ask people i do still think they would tend to say that like let white people acting like anything other than white people is like more of a threat than a possibility for anything else so it's 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 interesting how he could see some potential in, in, in the stuff that in the very stuff that is now like most decried in the social movements that are the successors of what he was doing at the time. The thing about like this angle that's frustrating to me is, you know, I uh, I think there is something to the idea that, and I mean, it, it's not like it's not like a revolutionary thought because. Uh, this was like commonly stated in the 60s and the 70s. Like I think Malcolm X talks about in his autobiography. Huey P. Newton talks about this. Eldridge Cleaver talks about it in his book. So it, it was a common strain, this idea that the black world uh, has something to teach white America. And uh, growing up, I mean, I, I very much identified with this, right? I sort of... Uh, you know, going from Belarus, which is obviously like a an all-white kind of environment um to brooklyn like i was i was in like flatbush for the first year or so that i was here then i moved moved a little bit elsewhere and i was always like in very kind of varied uh diverse environments and by the time that i got to high school you know it was already a, a majority black high school and i definitely felt like there is something to learn from black america that you're not going to learn if you're just stuck in white america uh, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot to learn from either walking through uh, some of these neighborhoods that you might not be living in. There's a lot to learn in, like he, he talks a lot in the book about this idea that 
you know, there's white people that want to hang out with you, but they don't want to, they don't want to sit with you and eat, right? They don't want to be uh, seen with you in this kind of, um, you know, in this kind of dynamic. And I remember like consciously thinking of that in high school when I read the book and I was like, I I'm going to make an effort to make sure that the friends that I hang out with in school or outside of school that were actually like, you know, uh, I would actually sit down with them. And I remember like, for instance, like being in, in the cafeteria and I would sit down specifically with, with the black kids at the black table. And I would always be, I would say like 99% of the time, I would be the only white person there. And I remember just like making an effort, like, you know, this is a somewhat new environment for me. It's different, but you gotta have to deal with it, you know, get over the discomfort, go through it. Uh, and eventually like, it'll be fine. So there is, there is definitely something to that. Uh, I, I said before, like, so if Soul Nice changed my life in one direction, just like maybe six months after this book, I, I came across for the first time uh, this anthology of Harlem Renaissance poetry. And in it was County Cullen's poems, her uh, poem Heritage. And when I read that poem, I immediately thought, okay, I'm interested in poetry. And although I haven't read much poetry, I, I was like, I know for a fact that this is a great poem that this is such a great poem and i want to like make my life about like how can i figure out why that is i need to answer why and i need to have that answer like be able to be applicable to other situations other poems going forward mm -hmm. um and like listening to rap right one thing that really uh fascinated me was how at the time uh, white art was more and more going in this direction of everything is subjective, everything is equally valid. Don't worry about better or worse. Everything is the same. Everything's on the same level. And rappers, they never felt this way. They would always be very adamant about there is talent and there is a lack of talent. This is what it looks like. And they were very competitive about it. And I really enjoyed that competitive streak. Again, partly because, you know, growing up in a city, you know, as a kid, as a male, especially, you're going to be competitive. And one of the ways that I wanted to be competitive was like, I, I realized, well, I could use my mind and I could write. And this is the way that I could like, sort of like, you know, forge something out of myself. So, and, you know, like, you know, black culture was doing all these things that white culture was not. And I, I definitely think there's something to that. But at the same time, obviously you could go like very far in a direction where like Kerouac writes in that passage, all the little black children that you see are sitting like sages, right? And yeah. just kind of like missing really just like what the actual reality is. Like I remember like in one of my classes in high school, uh, I was tutoring some kids and these are these are all these are all kids from the Coney Island projects. And I was sitting with them and I was like, uh, all right, we have this history test coming up and you're gonna have to write a paragraph on this or that uh, for the essay. And thinking like, damn, like they they like this kid can't put together a paragraph. Maybe they could put together a sentence, but they can't put together a paragraph. This is really what it, you know, what that day-to-day -day experience was like. And it was a struggle and it was, you know, like it, they were trying to find a way out. Um, and I remember like, like when I, after I graduated, I was telling people, yeah, I'm not going to go straight to college. I'm going to take a year off. And all the black kids that, that I knew, especially the, the, the girls, they were like, they were like, no, you have, you have to go to college right away. Uh, you, you, you have to actually do that. You can't, uh, cause the, uh, the idea was there's such a fine line between saying that you're going to do something versus you could just like drop out immediately and never, ever, ever go, you know, do this thing again. 
right? Because in in that experience, that kind of is the case, right? Like if you just get off your pivot, even just for a little bit, all the plants that you have, you know, they're going to go up in smoke. You might fall in the wrong crowd, right? Just like, and I, I didn't, and I was like trying to explain like, no, you don't get it. I'm just taking a year off. And what I, they didn't understand that. What I didn't understand was, you know, that kind of like fine line. What they didn't understand was no matter what choices I would make, I would eventually make my way into college because mm -hmm. my, my upbringing is not a typical black upbringing, upbringing right? It's a more typical white upbringing. So mm -hmm. there was that kind of disconnect that I started to appreciate more and more with time. So there, there is a lot to learn, you know, it's true. But at the same time, like, you know, I, I can't get over this uh, very uh, like, like poser sort of like element in, in Soul and Ice. Well, it's as simple as there's a lot to learn, but that doesn't mean you should fetishize it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot to uh, a lot to learn, but it doesn't hold the panacea of fixing everything uh, that is that that is wrong in your personal life or in society at large. It's not I, I, it, there. There are aspects of it that should be scaled up. There's a, a YouTuber, FD Signifier. I don't know if you've watched any of his stuff. But he talked in one video about how, at least to, to his intuitive sense, there is sort of a, like, naturally socialistic, uh, like, social relations that exist between Black people, you know, just sort of a, a, a sense that, like, we're all riding the line where, you know, we are all uh, in a position where we could fall. So if you need me to, like, watch your kids last minute, you know, no problem. If you need to do this, if you need, you know, if you, if somebody gets behind, we'll all pitch in a few bucks and, and, and get it back up on their feet, you know, that, so, so, so that I, I would say is something that probably, probably white people could stand to, you know, who are intensely individualistic in a personally toxic and self-destructive way uh, I, that I absolutely think, uh, should be scaled up, but, you know, bl black culture, whatever there is to admire in it is also forged in intense poverty and discrimination and, you know, the, and, and all the, all the things that can engender social pathologies that are obviously not things that you would want to scale up. And so, it, you know, you just, you, you can't make a totem of these things and, Treat, treat it as absolutes so it, it, it's it's really as simple as like segregation is obviously bad and we need to we need to fix the problems that it causes you know you can you can put it in the in the very flowery and abstract language that he does at the end with the the, the, the omnipotent administrator and the uh super masculine menial and the ultra feminine and the amazon and all this stuff but in, in the end all it's really saying is we need to do away with segregation and people need to be allowed to be more fully themselves and not have to cordon off parts of themselves by holding up this power structure that requires certain things of them. And that's, that, that, that's, that's very, very reasonable. And, and, and to my mind, very, very obvious. And I do think that the basic point of what he's saying here, which is that, Black America and white America need to need to come together and build something new for the future that is neither what black people nor white people currently are is just like it, it's obviously true. It's why I get very, very frustrated with a lot of the the hangups on the left about like how to deal with race because 
like like ultimately this whatever the solution is is going to be whatever is the particular rhetorical basis on which some kind of compromise can be formed between people that are more focused on fighting racial inequality and people that are more focused on class warfare it's going to look something like we're okay well we're just building something new we're not really trying to defend either of these things on the on the terms that that you know that we're currently talking about them and so it, it's it's frustrating to see how long it's taking you know that to happen but you know i like ultimately i'm a nurse so i i i i deal with people at their most physiological you know i deal with people at in some of the worst moments of their lives and and what i do know is that Everybody really is like it's very cheesy and cliche to say, but everybody really is the same, and you can't you can't make a fetish of different groups of people, uh, and, and you can't you you can't blow out of proportion what they actually are in your head because of your own dis dissatisfaction of your own life because it's not going to help you and it's not going to help them. Mm -hmm. What do you think of some of the uh, specific attacks that uh, Cleaver goes on uh, in the text, for example, against James Baldwin? So, like, just to contextualize this a little bit, uh, you know, there, there's a ton of like, you know, like very like homophobic language here. Um, he calls homosexuality a a disease, right? It's it, he call he says like it's it's basically a, to be a homosexual is basically on par with pedophilia, that sort of thing. And I'm not sure if this is a, a true story, but uh, so after these like attacks on Baldwin in 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 this book, uh, after Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver had their falling out in the 70s, where uh, Cleaver he wanted to sort of like continue on of this like hyper revolutionary kind of streak, right? Engaging in shootouts and whatnot with with police, so on and so forth. He was uh, on the run from the law. Uh, because of some of these activities um at some point Huey Newton uh writing this was like some essay in the 70s I remember it was like like the Huey P. Newton reader or whatever and I remember coming across an essay where Newton he was basically like railing against this kind of uh back then he called it sissies right this idea that uh there's this thing in in black America where we constantly criticize sissies and by that he meant homosexuals and he put cleaver in this category right and he like you know he highlighted some of the passages in his texts and then he said something like but i was in a room with cleaver and baldwin and when cleaver met baldwin for the first time cleaver kissed him on the mouth i don't know if this is true i don't know if huey uh, knew he was just trying to be inflammatory yeah. But at the same time, like there is definitely something going on with Cleaver and his really like hyperfixation on masculinity. Granted, a lot of this is probably due to the fact that it is true that you would be emasculated, right, as a, as a black male in the fifties and the sixties is just a fact. At the same time, you don't have to necessarily end up in a situation where uh, you are now selling pants that are meant to like accentuate the penis, right? That are supposed to be like, this is how you show your virility, right? He became like essentially a clothing designer uh, trying to sell uh, these kinds of clothes, right? That seems like, first of all, just being a clothing designer as a male. 
uh, in and of itself, but then secondarily a clothing designer that is <laughs> making clothes to emphasize the penis, right? There's something there uh, going on. Um, he could have been bisexual. He could have, uh, uh, you know, been threatened uh, in this kind of way. Because I, I, you know, like maybe uh, you would you would have something else to say about specifically his his, his critique of of James Baldwin, but I don't really find anything in that critique. I mean, he at some point he says something like, "In Baldwin's books, you know, all the characters are uh, sucking and fucking in a vacuum," and maybe there's like something a little bit to it in the sense that, like, if you read something like Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. It's a book that is, it's very arresting if you like know anything about Baldwin in the sense that uh, there's no black characters, they're all white. Uh, Dave is the is the protagonist and he goes to live in France where he come, comes across uh, uh, either a homosexual or bisexual named Giovanni and they start a relationship and Dave is, he's not able to uh like stick with it because he feels kind of like uh, i guess ashamed of his sexuality or his feelings he is like in a relationship with a woman before that so maybe it's like you know some you know maybe it is like bisexuality or whatever but basically he can't deal with it so uh, uh he abandons giovanni and there's really no like deep like there's no like uh, uh racial uh overtone there there is no racial critique it literally is white characters in france um doing you know white things like like from any other kind of book that you might read from the era that might talk about uh you know white sexuality and whatnot and he might find this like worthy to critique but to me um because like cleaver would he, he often said stuff like you know i i don't know whether uh my calling is to be a writer or to be a leader of the black race right a leader of men because i mean you could sort of tell this like just how the book is it clearly is not uh like other black panther writing or other black writing at the time like he's very much going towards some sort of like higher form of expression even if he you know succeeds only some of the time but uh just from a writerly perspective i think it's very uh wonderful that baldwin could have a book that has absolutely nothing to do with his chief preoccupations um at least the ones that he you know like actively wrote about and that he's most famous for right namely race um and like he he as a writer he should be able to do that and if cleaver has sort of these inclinations as like this in-between state of like you know i'm a writer but also a leader and i don't know which to be he should be at least sympathetic to that the fact that he cannot be sympathetic in any way uh it is it, it is because uh, he's sort of he probably does know better but it seems like there is this kind of motivated reasoning there is perhaps a discomfort with maybe his own sexuality, just putting all the pieces together. Like, ah, you, you can't come away thinking that there's something, um, you know, like not going on, you know? It's really creepy the way the that he focuses on James Baldwin. In terms of substance of the critique, he's there's an implied argument that Richard Wright is a better novelist than James Baldwin, which I would say is true. Mm -hmm. James yes. Baldwin was better as an essayist than he was as a mm -hmm. novel. I mean, his novels are good. They're just not like, mm -hmm. they, they don't blow your socks off. You know, they're, it, they're, they're very competent and very well-written, but they, it, they don't have the sort of passionate incisiveness that a lot of his uh, essays uh, were, were able to capture. Uh, so, you know, that, I, I mean, it seems basically that he was, offended that James Baldwin was not a fan of Richard Wright, that he put violence where sex should be or whatever. And so he 
in, inflated this slight against a writer that he liked into this weird philosophical denunciation of black homosexuality per se as, you know, basically racial self-hatred that leads you to want to get fucked and degraded by white guys basically to to bring into the bedroom the figurative uh degradation and castration that you uh undergo in your daily life in the socioeconomic spheres and it's just I, the thing that's really annoying about the chapter is at first it like it doesn't start off extremely homophobic he's actually very complimentary towards james mm -hmm. baldwin as a writer i mean he all but says you know james baldwin's a better writer than me you know and he says he has a lot, he owes him a lot. And then it sort of starts making the case that James Baldwin has a dislike of black people that you can find between the lines. And just also in the very fact that he is pursuing this sort of very, uh, th th this kind of literary affectation that has mostly been pursued by white people historically. I mean, I think that the, the latter is a little bit tendentious, but saying that we can psychoanalyze his writings and find sort of uh, submerged uh, racial self-hatred would be, you know, perfectly fine, a perfectly fine focus for an essay. And then when he starts talking about the homosexuality, at first, you're not sure if he's speaking metaphorically or not, you know, at, at first, you're not sure if if he's just trying to do something it's like when when you read on the jewish question in uh, the by karl marx where mm. it's not actually an anti-semitic tract it's like using the anti-semitism of the day to make a point about capitalism and the trajectory that everybody was on but it reads really weirdly from a 21st century perspective and it's probably not the first thing that you would drag up from Marx's corpus if you were trying to introduce them to his mm -hmm. writings, you know, but then toward the end, it's just abject, you know, homophobia. Oh, this is disgusting. This is just, you know, pure filth. This is, you know, the, the this man who hates his race, he, and he hates himself so much that he just wants to, you know, like, like this, he can't be destroyed by the white people that he idolizes like he really wants. So the next best thing is, and he can't become white, so the next best thing is to have a white man shoot his semen in him. It's just, it's just gross, man. It's just, mm -hmm. I don't, and I don't know in terms of what it. I, I, I mean, clearly it says something about him that he is so preoccupied with masculinity. You know, it says something about him. I mean, assuming that he's telling the truth and that his rape of women was like a self-consciously political act that he was engaging in. You know, it, it, it certainly says something it says something about like his brain and the way that like sex and sexuality and penises and vaginas and buttholes and things like that existed in his brain all like all in a jumble with his politics and and with everything else and you know not to bring up the old saw of like right-wing conservatives are like all secretly closeted homosexuals or whatever but you know, it says something that he could go from this, you know, go from Islam to like a sort of secularized Islamic Black Panther Party kind of thing that he was trying to do to 
fundamentalist evangelical Christianity to Mormonism at the end of his life. And like, he just, it, he's like finding increasingly like more, well, I guess Islam is pretty repressive of homosexuals as well, but like that, that he keeps latching onto these, the, these movements uh, that are contemptuous of homosexuals. And when the left kind of started to move away from that, he had to go to the right because that was like more important to him than like all these other stated values of this beautiful new world that he's trying to to build or whatever. So, I mean, I certainly think there's a case to be made that at the very least there is a psychosexual uh, fixation on homosexuality that probably was like almost functionally identical to uh, either the homosexuality or bisexuality, like in practice to where he, like, like, like whether he actually was, you know, had a gay longing or not, uh, it would have scratched some kind of itch for him to like, to get fucked or to fuck a guy or something like that. You know, it's like he had put so much emphasis on it that like it, it's, it's filling some kind of hole in him. You know, it's, he's getting, he's getting off on it at the very least, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, another ad aspect to this like attack on Baldwin is like, first of all, like in Baldwin's, so the, one of the essays that he critiques is uh, Baldwin's essay, uh, Alas, Poor Richard uh, on Richard Wright. And I wouldn't even call it an attack like Baldwin's own essay is not an attack really on Richard Wright. Uh, it just speaks to primarily the fact that in many ways, like Richard Wright was his mentor. I mean, he was older than Baldwin and he wrote the essay after he died. He talks about the the relationship that they had. Um, he, he talks about, you know, in many ways, like looking up to him. And then he talks about not even so much his writing, but he talks about like if you sit down and you speak with with Richard Wright and you ask him questions about society, you ask him questions about, um, you know, what your vision of the future might be, that his answers to Baldwin were not satisfying in some way. That is that that uh, Richard Wright, you know, he he had this like great book, but at the same time, he was not really able to like, you know, maybe get outside that scope and, and, and to talk about, because like Baldwin clearly had a much more voracious kind of mind in terms of what he consumed mm -hmm. and the way that it came out. And even if like, I agree that his fiction is not as successful as the best of Richard Wright, at the same time, uh, there was kind of like more breadth to it, right? Not, mm -hmm. not necessarily more depth, but more breadth, right? More kind of like, you know, avenues to explore. And that's just kind of like what he did. And in some ways, understood I understood literature better than Richard Wright. Yeah, certainly. I think that that's fair to say. Yeah. And it, it kind of mirrors actually what Cleaver does at the, the beginning of the essay about Baldwin, where he does not dismiss Baldwin as a, a writer, right? He says that he's uh, brilliant. He says that he has great talent. But now he's going to offer these these other kinds of critiques that maybe they don't even necessarily always have to do with the quality of the writing itself. So it is weird to me that he sees Baldwin doing the same exact thing that he himself is doing this essay, and yet you know there's still there's still not the kind of a, a you know empathy that you would expect, um, which again it it brings more. Uh, this idea of like s suspicion uh, of uh, Cleaver's, you know, hyperfixation on these other elements on sexuality, masculinity, uh, whatever, um, all these things that, 
And I mean, like, this is also a possibility, right, in terms of like, when we think about, well, what are the costs of emasculating an entire race of people? Uh, one of those might be, you know, Cleaver might have been an otherwise, uh, you know, excellent or great writer, let's say at some point, but instead he's forced to do this weird shit that he ends up in, right? He ends up going in this direction. Whereas like if he had a more kind of healthy upbringing and healthier outlets, he didn't have to hyperfixate. There, there's there's one chapter, I think the wor- one of the worst chapters in the book is that uh, a chapter uh, near the end of primeval mitosis, which is just like total like gobbledygook. It's like it's yeah. like the most boring elements of like, you know, modern day like gender war discourse or whatever that you find online uh, distilled into like, it's like pre red pill psychology, but it's also mm-hmm. like it's not, you know, it's also it's also like pre evolutionary psychology. So it's like whatever sort of like amblings that you have in your in your mind, right? You just go in any like random little direction and you come out with something that just just reads because I remember like even at the time reading it uh, as a teenager and just kind of like my eyes just glazing over. I was like, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Maybe if I get older or whatever, I have more experience, I'll figure it out. But, you know, sure enough, mm-hmm. uh, here I am, you know, in the same kind of uh, situation. Um, and I mean, before we get to maybe some of the uh, better parts of the book, I, I would say that the worst chapter in the book is probably the very last one, which is... Oh, the last uh, chapter is awful. Yeah, which is titled um, uh, To All Black Women from All Black Men. And there's this kind of like starting, um, I don't know if you call it an epigraph or whatever, but it's like maybe a, a little, I don't, I don't know what we call it. Like it's just a few lines. And it's t- it says, queen, mother, daughter of Africa, next line, sister of my soul, next line, black bride of my passion, next line, my eternal love, right? So it has like tons and tons of these kinds of cliches. And the final line is, but put on your crown, my queen, and we will build a new city in capitals uh, on these ruins. Um, and it's it's kind of funny uh, seeing it, like knowing the biography, because uh, so it's, it's all black women for all, all black men. But the time that he's writing the book, he's ha- he's like developing these feelings for Beverly Axelrod, which is his lawyer who's a white woman about like 10 or 12 years his senior. She also represented a bunch of other uh, like left wing types uh, in in the sixties and seventies, and um, he like so like soon so like they were storing this romance, and after he got out of prison, nineteen sixty six, he immediately uh, tried dating her, and they did for only a few months, but there was like some kind of like bullying going on towards him by the Black Panthers and also his own family. He he brought uh, Axelrod to his uh, uh, family one time for Christmas dinner. And they were like, like, what, what, what are you doing with this white woman? And other like Black Panthers were like making fun of him. Like, you, really? Like this like older white woman, this is this is uh, this is who you're going to go for. So it's kind of it's, it's almost a little bit similar to when I did that show with the Norman Finkelstein when uh, we went through the biography of Obama, where Obama kind of like felt early on, like, OK, I'm dating all these uh white or asian or whatever women and if i want to be in politics as a black man i have to have like a proper black family so yeah. you know Mich- michelle fits the bill it's similar kind of like little thing going on here um so yeah i mean like what do you uh, uh, maybe there's not much to say about the chapter but what do you think uh no it's just it's just bad you know i i, I guess i can appreciate that he was trying to do something maybe a little more literary like to end it instead of the politics but mm-hmm. 
It's just full of cliches. It's it's discordant with like other parts of the book as well because the the chapter that precedes that is the like the theoretical uh articulation of the whole his whole like system of how white men and women and black men and women are socialized into these like body and mind roles and mm-hmm. how there's just nothing but you know the, the like wh- white men really only like black women and white women really only like black men because of the uh, it, it, it's they are the embodiments of what is repressed in them and 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 blah 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 and you know it just it, it, but that but then this comes right after that and it's like what, what okay but you just spent the previous chapter articulating like the impossibility of this mm-hmm. you know you spent the previous chapter saying like i mean and so so i guess it's supposed to be hopeful you know, it's supposed to say like, okay, here's how it has been, but here's how it's going to be in the future. Uh, mm-hmm. But it just it it just doesn't work. And what uh, it's I I it's weird because he like he clearly has some chops. So you wondered like what it is that stopped him from because because if you I, I mean I don't love the chapter about the. the the chapter about the super masculine menial or and the rock and roll and all that but Mm -hmm. the ending of that chapter would certainly be a better ending to the book than the one that that he actually includes you know this sort of begrudging respect for the beatles as sort of creating the 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 possibility for white people to step over the color line and embrace you know a, a more embodied sense of self uh than is possible in their pre you know in the previous white existence you know it's not a super strong chapter overall but as an as an ending it makes more sense it's more in line with what has previously had like been stated in the book and it's not as uh horribly written and the last the last uh chapter of or the last paragraph of that chapter enter the beatles Soul by proxy, middlemen between the mind and the body, a long way from Pat Boone's white shoes, a way station on a slow route traveled with all deliberate speed. Like mm-hmm. that's that's not fantastic, but it's clearly a better ending to the book than the one that he picks. Mm-hmm. So why didn't you why didn't you stick with that ending, dude? Why didn't you, or, mm-hmm. or why didn't you take one of the other chapters and put those at the end? Put the love letters at the end. The love letters were certainly better written than that chapter. Yeah. You know, and also make they make more sense uh, as like talking about like if you're trying to build on this idea of uh, of the of black and white people crossing the color line and building something new together, then the love letters that you wrote to your white lawyer about like love just like cracking you open and and being this like terrifying thing like like that as a as a metaphorical embodiment of what you have described in the previous chapter would be better and better written than, than what you ended with. So I, I don't know if somebody told him that he, I, I don't know if it was his idea. I don't know if it was an editor's idea, but just, yeah, it just leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. And mm-hmm. I guess the whole book kind, kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth because there's a lot of bad stuff in the book. But it, it, even the parts of the book that you can admire, they are uh, like they become like when you end a book badly, even the stuff that you admire in the book is like lesser because that's the last thing that it left you with. You know, 
R- Rashomon is a really great movie, but the fact that it ends very badly, sort of retroactive, because if everything was building to that, then what was the point of it all? You know, like if you can't stick to, I mean, there's a reason that when someone can't stick the landing at the at the Olympics, that that significantly impacts the score, mm-hmm. you know, because like being able to do the flippies is one thing, but being, being able to do the flippies and get and land on the ground, you know, with perfect poise and, and, and perfect posture, uh, like it, that's the point of it. You know, that's the, I can do all that and land, you know, that's, the, the, that's just kind of how people think is the last thing is what's going to stick. It's like the first thing and the last thing is what's going to stick with you. Yeah. Um, do, do you have a, uh, specific chapter that you think is the best because to me i think overall if i'm going to identify so like first of all i do agree that the the love letters surprisingly because i one thing that i was sort of like cringing internally about when i was going to reread this book i was like damn i'm going to have to like read through some of the love letters and i'm sure it's probably not handled very well but they actually were handled pretty well there's not that many uh cliches or anything like that and some of the like he he has like inversions of cliches. Um, uh, he has like li- like little inversions of tropes, such as you know instead of like talking about like love or whatever, f- making him feel like you know uh, powerless or uh, he he talks about this like numb spot somewhere in his body, and you know he he starts like referencing love as like you know uh, dealing with like th- that numb spot and it's just kind of like an unconventional way to like broach the subject and um also her letter back to him wasn't really all that bad either um mm-hmm. and so like that part was surprising but to me the, the best part i think is so on page 51 um the christ and his teachings uh, it's 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 kind of surprising in the sense that it's just a sketch. Oh yeah, this of, chapter. This chapter was was excellent. Yeah, so it's it's a sketch of a teacher that he had in prison, a white man that would show up and kind of like um, I wouldn't call it like formal attire or whatever, but he says that he's dressed like a college student, um, college student as you would expect in the '60s or whatever, or maybe the '50s. Uh, with like, you know, like nice sweaters and, you know, maybe like dress tight pants or whatnot. And he doesn't, you know, he, it's it's clear on the one hand that he's making a critique of himself in the sense of he was still trying to get over his own kind of personal racism, right? He goes in to prison, right? He calls himself a racist and he says that, you know, I would like rage against the white race and I would, you know, just typical like, you know, like Nation of Islam type shit that you would expect in late 50s, early 60s before Malcolm X's transformation. I wonder honestly to what extent Malcolm X's own transformation when it comes to uh, racism and his feelings about the white race impacted uh, Cleaver's, right? Because it seems like Cleaver could easily like take these kinds of examples from others into his own life. But he he is like sort of dealing with that, but he's not like he he's not being like overt and hitting you know you over the head with it. like at some point when uh, he's asked to submit an essay uh, to this teacher, he uh, submits an essay where basically like on page fifty nine he he says something like um, uh, I, I wrote an essay that was, so so love Jeff which is the name of this man refused to grade my paper. Or, or, or rather before i get there this is uh how this is how the, the essay went how can i love the man who raped my mother killed my father enslaved my ancestors dropped atomic bombs in japan killed off the indians and keeps me cooped up in the slums 
I'd rather be tied up in a sack and tossed into the Harlem River first. And Love Jeff, uh, the teacher, refuses to grade it. And then uh, they have this conversation. How can you do this to me? He asked. I've only written the way I feel, I said. Instead of answering, he cried. Jesus wept, I told him, and walked out. Two days later, he returned my essay ungraded. There were instead spots on it, which I realized to be his tears. And he doesn't like use that opportunity to just like dwell and dwell and like, yeah, I used to be so racist and now I'm not anymore. He just leaves it at that. That kind of self-critique that he does, it's an implied self-critique, maybe in the context of the rest of the book, right? He's able to control some of his worst tendencies and the the way that he um like and the way that he just describes this man, there's like so many like little elements that uh will will stay with you. Um like when he describes how dedicated Love Jeff was to the students, he would say, when you came to Love Jeff's classes, you came to learn. If you betrayed other motives, get out of here this minute without malice, but without equivocation. He was a magnet, an institution. He worked indefatigably. His day started when the school bell rang at 8 a.m. Often he would forgo lunch to interview a few students and help them along with their schoolwork or personal problems. He never ceased complaining because the officials refused to allow him to eat lunch in the mess hall of the prisoners. Had they given him a cell, he would have taken it, right? And it's full of these kinds of descriptions that really stick with you about this man. And, you know, it's just, you know, maybe he didn't have good teachers growing up, probably uh, didn't uh, to some degree. And this is the one teacher that that sticks with him. And I mean, this is kind of like a, I guess it's a genre of writing, right? People often talk about teachers that really had an impact on them. And this probably like among that genre, it would be like one of the best artifacts in that genre that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in yeah. general, the the chapter in which that section is contained, it's called Four Vignettes. Mm-hmm. which is kind of a joke because there's more than four. Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking that when I was reading, I was like, what? Yeah, uh, but I, I, in general, I think that that is like page for page, probably the, the strongest bit of writing in the book. In general, I would say that when he is writing about himself and things that he maybe actually plausibly has done, uh, that's probably when he's at his strongest. He really does have kind of a, a, a knack for getting at the situation in a way that conveys the emotional truth without without too many cliches, without uh, without dwelling on stuff or hammering stuff too hard. The chapter starts out with a section called On Watts, where he talks about how Everyone was so excited when they heard about the the Watts uh, riot. It, it, uh, what, what year was that? Nineteen sixty-five. Yeah, I, think. I can't remember. Uh, and and how everybody was claiming ownership. You know, claiming that they're from Watts. You know, I'm from Watts. That's my. Those are my people fighting the man, killing those pigs, all that stuff. And then goes on to say, you know, that was all. This was all bullshit because Watts was before all of this thought of as like a shameful horrible place to be from full of just the lowest of the low of the black community and but but and so we're like instrumentalizing this thing that previously we had treated rather shabbily in our in our conception of it so that's good um let's see there uh there 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 is oh there there's a section called eyes which is just like you know, 
comparing one time someone said that he had nice eyes and one time that somebody said oh, yeah, that I remember he, that mm-hmm. yeah when, one time that somebody said that he had the devil's eyes and you know it's it's nice and short you know it probably could be a little more developed but just he 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 is a very dualistic thinker so in terms of embodying his overall philosophy it's good it's got the chapter on soul food that we talked about earlier how soul food is overrated like this is the like the shit bits of the pig that we were given and trying to turn this into a cultural identity or like a, a totem of you know our our community connection or whatever like it's just going to be doomed to failure because what we want is beef you know what everybody mm-hmm. wants is beef because beef is the best uh and there's the section where he talks about uh being in sunday school and saying that he can explain the tri- the, the the christian trinity and mm-hmm. being you know shamed by his teacher uh and saying no the whole point is that nobody could explain it you have to live with the 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 mystery of the trinity and then he yeah, ends it, by saying the, the question was the like can you explain the mystery of the trinity yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and uh and then he ends by saying I had intended to explain the Trinity with an analogy to three-in-one oil, so it was probably just as well. Yeah, you know, there's like a nice sense of humor there, and then it ends with the bit that you talked about—the uh, interactions with Love Jeff. Also, a nice treatment of encountering Thomas Merton. Yeah, yeah, uh, as a black man say that. as well. You know, looking at this this white guy, you know, claiming that monkhood is like the saintly and best condition that man can live in. You know. Coming from a, 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 a an impoverished and dispossessed community where community is like really deeply important, and working through the gap that he feels toward this man who he identifies the power of his writings kind of immediately, but he can't relate to him at all personally. Like so, so just in like go in the sense that it, it is the 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 chapter of the book that has the most memorable parts and the least bad parts. Uh, I would say that it was probably that and the, and actually the love letters are probably like the, the, the strongest segments uh, of the book. And the last segment of the book is the worst one. Cause that's where he's expounding on. That's got the primeval mitosis, the, the, to all black women from all black men the, the you know that's the that's the, that's the section where it really goes off the rails. You know, I think it's pretty clear that he was, a good rhetorician and he had a really strong knack for observation but he was not a theorist he was not a uh, mm. he he is not in the tradition of a quality leftist theorist if you believe in such a thing you know he it's an example of somebody feeling that they have to contribute to that because that is on the culture of the left is like oh i've got a really good theory about like how society is sliced up and what's making it tick and when he tried to deal with it on that level he just couldn't overcome his own like psychosexual fixations enough not to give them the pride of place in the whole theory Mm -hmm. yeah i I think uh in some ways the book gets worse as, as it goes on and on uh but there, there's also that that uh, near the end of chapter where there's that old black man that he and the other prisoners are just just trying to like make fun of and you know question him like you know why aren't you dead? And the old man goes in this like long kind of rant about um, you know his relationships with with uh, uh, black women and how you know all he really desires is is the white woman. Kind of like going back to the beginning. Uh, Cleaver himself has 
a chapter where he's talking about his encounter with the ogre, which uh, to him is uh, just like a, a name for the white woman and his fixation on on white women and why, um, you know, he's asking himself, why why is it that uh, I and the other prisoners are so interested in white women as opposed to black women? And this is not something like when I was like listening to the rant of the, of the old man uh, at the end of the book, uh, it's not something that has really gone away, I don't feel. There's still this kind of like perennial conflict between uh, black males and black females that I think is just kind of like highlights exactly what happens in uh, situations with like where there's like class conflict, where there's some sort of like a deeper social breakdown. When there's, I mean, let's just face it, I think it's something like 52 versus 48%, right? 52% of the black population is female. If you look at the population of black males, uh, the higher up that you go in age, they start to drop off, right? Mm -hmm. um, first, you have a dropping off, like, you know, from teenage years to the age of 25, where a lot of murders take place. And then you have subsequent dropping off due to, I don't know, you know, health issues or whatever catch up to you. Um, and because of this kind of imbalance, you're, you're, you're bound to have some level of dysfunction and just anthropologically, that's just kind of how it is. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you, you can't have a real imbalance like this. And, uh, I mean, what, what do you, what, what do you think about some of the comments on a black female, a black male relations? Because like when he talks about like the, the sort of steeliness of black women and how there's this kind of like a uh, uh, front that comes up and this inability to like, uh, um, you know, th th this kind of like reflexive uh, defensiveness. It, it seems like it's very ripe for a, a deeper kind of examination that we don't really get. Like it feels like most of it is just kind of like either, you know, it's either a women shaming black males for, having you know regressive views on relationships and, and sex and whatever or it's like you see like like stuff on social media where you have a, a black men complaining about women like you know why you know why would i date a black woman uh i could just date a white woman and not deal with you know not deal with the attitude not deal with this not deal with that and no one is actually like really talking about well what are you know maybe some of the some of the causes here and why is this something that seems to be totally perennial right it never seems to end uh well we're not that far removed from a state of affairs where uh travels across the color line in relationships could get you killed you know mm -hmm. and i'm sure there maybe some really like remote parts of the of the deep south where maybe that's still true i do not know uh uh, and and it certainly is still kind of stochastically true. I mean, you do hear about violence happening over interracial relationships, like once in a while in the news, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, I would say it's just that there was this be, being racially constrained in terms of your partners is probably just going to, you know, it's going to produce like neurosis, you know, mm -hmm. like I would say in general black people are less neurotic than white people in my interactions with them but like you if you're going to have neurosis somewhere then it's going to be around this 
life, this literally life and death issue that was enforced on you for a hundred years after after slavery ended, and for hundreds of years while slavery was in effect. You know, I mean, that's the and since there has been no wider societal working through of the matter of race, then the conditions that would solve the, the this issue, you know, this the, this sort of you know uh, clinging and resentment at the same time that it, it, it that seems to to exist, then of course, of course, it wouldn't go away. Of course, you would still have black people that look on any black person that dates a white person as a as a betrayer, you know, or, or as someone who like, how dare you bring an interracial child into this world, you know, like, they're not going to be equipped to handle it, you know, or, or, of course, you'll have the, the this sort of, uh, although I will say it, the the fetishization seems less on black people's part than on white people's part these days though because i would say yes. most of, i would say most interracial pornography for example is i mean it is partially made for black men but it does seem like it's made for white guys more than it's made for anybody else in terms of well it's like, it's, it's it's meant first of all for like men in general so yes. uh, yeah but in terms of i mean in terms of who is drawn to it it does seem like it's more white guys than black guys at least based on like i i've done uh, some research on like uh search results for porn and things like that that people have compiled and it's all these like lily lily white areas where you see like uh these really desperate searches for interracial porn Mm -hmm. and the like so it it it, it does seem like it's more I, i i mean it's it's clear that Cleaver is describing something real when he's talking about all of this stuff. He's describing like a like a genuine and kind of intractable issue uh, that is that is still around. He just he he just goes into full crank territory when he's talking about it, you know. Instead of mm-hmm. like because he he is so wound up about it himself that he can't take a step back and l- look at it like anthropologically or sociologically or something like Mm -hmm. that you know he can't take a step back and saying oh this is happening because of this reason you know so so he has to blow it up into this whole like almost cosmological view of the world and of like the the psychology of black men and black women and white men and, and white women i you know i will say when you mentioned the chapter where the the older guy is going on this long monologue toward the younger guys i i thought that chapter was not as like like the things the guy is saying are kind of cringeworthy but as long as they're just a things that a guy is saying then it's stronger yeah i think it characterizes him pretty well actually you know well well and it's also because it 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 leaves it's sort of like how when, when nietzsche does philosophy you know putting it in the form of like uh uh of something dramatized mm-hmm. it's less like here's what i think it's more like you should think about this mm-hmm. you know it's it, it it just kind of puts it out there and lets you do the work of deciding what you actually think about it so i actually think that 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 chapter is is stronger than it has any right to be because of the layer of artifice yeah. that is that is put on top of it and the and the fact that he gets through with this rant and the young guys like 
they, they clearly think that there's something there, but they can't deal with it and they and they mm-hmm. chase him off. And the ending of that chapter is very strong. I actually would say that the the thing in fiction that it reminds me of the most is the scene in the Turin horse where the two main characters get a visit <laughs> from this like old cranky, you know, uh, like Nietzsche of the heartland or whatever that comes in and just starts doing this rambling monologue about, uh, about, about basically just like being and becoming. And I remember when you saw that movie, you said it's almost like the field itself has come in and started mm-hmm. talking to them about their lives. And mm-hmm. it, it reminds me a lot, a, a lot of that. And so if he had just left it at that, it would have been a lot stronger, but when he actually tries to formalize it and like, like try to say that this is actually the way that reality is like materially functioning. It, it, it just like, it not only is silly, but it like undermines the, the power of the previous chapter. When you realize that this is like what he actually thinks, you know, it, it, if it was just this guy, like this older black guy who is sort of said, you know, that is being chastised by these young guys for not having been sufficiently radical in his younger years. And he lays out this harsh truth that these younger guys just don't want to deal with in their zeal to create a new world or whatever. That has some power, you know, and and to, to then go on and undermine it with this long, you know, like rambling, like I said, almost cosmological system of black and white sexuality is like, you know, it, it, it just shows that that like ultimately he didn't it's like you said, he didn't know what he wanted to be. You know, do I want to be a writer or do I want to be a, 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 a political leader? And those those really are two goals that are like at cross purposes, I would say. You know, mm-hmm. I know Stalin had some youthful dalliances in poetry, and I don't know if you've read any of it, but I've heard that it's better than you would think that he would that, that than it is but i have my skepticism toward that i would say i actually I actually uh, have and i probably should because it's the second time you're mentioning this but have i mentioned it before uh i think so i have like, I, I, rem- I remember i remember you saying something like it's better than you would expect it to be or something well i, I i've never read it i just i i mm-hmm. i i it has a better reputation okay that, that, that doesn't mean anything of course but was he uh, writing I, was he writing in georgian or I would imagine that he was writing in Georgian. Yeah, I, th- I I believe he was. As a matter of fact, now that mm-hmm. I, so I I, I I I neither of us can read it in the original Georgian. But um, but in general, movies. I would say that that politic like political leaders really do not make for good artists because the kind of limitations that material reality imposes on you when you're trying to deal with politics. It's sort of the opposite of the, the 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 freedom of the ideal world that is really kind of necessary for an artist to spend a lot of time with to come up with interesting and novel combinations of mm-hmm. the, whatever discrete combinatorial system they're they're working with, whatever medium. Well, one of the brilliant early moves of uh, uh, Soviet uh, identity politics is to make a Georgian right the the head of state um, over everybody. Uh, yeah. So before we close this out, my final thoughts on on Eldridge Cleaver and the book, uh, let's just talk about the Patreon show. So we're going to be talking about uh, COVID stuff where, I mean, recently Keith was like, isn't it kind of weird how 
the more and more uh, alarming studies about COVID and long-term consequences come out, the less and less of it that we hear unless you're actively seeking it out, um, which I, start, I started noticing myself back in January 2022 when the first like big, big uh, study started coming out about uh, long-term COVID, even among the vaccinated. And other, you know, even if you don't have, let's say, technically long COVID, the kinds of consequences that you might might have. And the fact that like I, I like I remember reading one one study, it's like people's brains would shrink after infection. I was like, why don't people know about this? And still, you know, people don't know about it. And I think there's a reason for that. So we're going to we're going to talk about uh, that. We're going to talk about. So Ibram X. Kendi recently. Uh, experienced an implosion. Ibram Kendi is the guy who did all those uh, anti-racist books that became uh, popular uh, in the in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd. And like from the beginning, you could sort of tell that he was uh, grifting. I think if you just read the books, uh, you you would sort of like come away with that understanding. But now we have actual confirmation that this is happening on a uh, monetary and employment basis. So we're going to talk about that. And also I'm going to do a show actually with Finkelstein on Kendi in a couple of days. So we're going to talk more more about that then as well. Um, what other topics? Was there uh, something else on your mind recently? Oh, you know, Matt Kreisman and uh, the Chapel Trap House stuff uh, recently where uh, Kreisman was, uh, I guess, hospitalized. And maybe we'll-, well, we'll I would actually about- suggest that, that we not, probably shouldn't talk about that just because uh the they they did sort of request like you know privacy please don't like speculate on what's going on we really just don't want to share it no well not not in the hospitalization but maybe just talk about like some of his work because i mean we mentioned him before uh yeah no we can talk about him as a as a a figure certainly i mean this is just kind of like the impetus because he's kind of like in the um you know uh he's uh in the news as it were so uh, just as an impetus uh and i mean a bunch of other topics if you guys want to see uh the whole collection of topics everything that we talk about uh this will actually be in the show notes right or the pinned comment under this video you'll see all the uh, things that we are discussing uh on the patron show um okay so to, to close it out uh another thing about cleaver is so just like reading his biography after this book is written uh, so he ends up after a couple of months, uh, the, he ends the relationship with a uh, Beverly Axelrod and actually during, I'm not sure if they came to this during the publication of the book or what, but she, I mean, she was very instrumental in getting the book out there, finding a publisher, that sort of thing. Uh, but another aspect to it was he promised something like 25% royalties to her. Uh, for the book's publication. And he actually, you know, even to the point where he was like, just totally like lost all his money, he was still adamant about keeping that until I think like where he was like somewhere abroad where he literally had no money left. He he tried to like take the royalties away from her, at which point she sued him. So this is ultimately where the relationship ended up, right? In, in a, a court of law and she was able to get the royalties back and throughout all this time like they were like so he ends up marrying a a, a 20 year old girl that saw him he was speaking at some university and she was also like a civil rights lawyer and whatnot and within a few years like i guess something was going on in the relationship where she had an affair with somebody and he ended up murdering him 
And he like later admitted to this, I think, privately to a couple of people. There's at least a couple of witnesses that say that he admitted to it. So, I mean, there, there's definitely something very troubled about this guy. Like we're talking about like, you know, mid thirties, still capable of uh, murdering somebody over like, you know, an affair. Well, and he and, tries to be like a new Che Guevara too. Like he's hopping mm -hmm. over to all of these like post-colonial hotspots trying yeah. to get like the Marxist angle or the, the, mm -hmm whatever Maoist angle going there. I think he ended up in North, North Korea at some point or, mm -hmm. or he worked with North Korea, which was yeah, his daughter was born in North yeah. Korea. Yeah. So it was, you know, just an odd life. And then he comes back to the States and he becomes a right wing Republican for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, you know, like this, this idea, like for some reason, it's kind of, it is kind of common, right? That people that are, are on the sort of fringes and extremes, they just end up, you know, it's just something psychologically where they end up swinging in between extremes yeah. and they don't, you know, like one thing that I will say about myself that uh, I didn't really realize when I first read the book is, uh, I, you know, I, I was able to read the book despite the fact that even as a teenager, I disagreed, uh, it, you know, with parts of it, obviously. And, you know, that's kind of like a good sign, right? You're able to take ideas into your head and you're, you're even willing to allow them to transform your life. And yet, like, for instance, like I was never, I never became some sort of like cleaver fan why i wasn't like seeking out you know it's only until honestly until recently that i like i i watched his like discussion or whatever you want to call it with william f buckley i never like sought out his videos or like you know paraphr like cleaver paraphernalia like i didn't really care right i was just like this is a book i'm going to treat it you know dispassionately and, and objectively i know that he had other shit going on in his life i later read that other book that he did saw on fire which is uh it's substantially worse than this book um mm -hmm. and like he he had like for example a chapter like uh, it was titled something like communism colon it's roses and it's thorns mm -hmm. uh you know it's like shit like that um but but anyway so yeah there's definitely like something about him that is like very off psychologically which is like it's it doesn't quite surprise me that he was in some ways like very much a writer right perhaps even more so than a leader it seems like as a leader he failed again and again and again it was even kicked out of the black panther party so mm -hmm. but you know like it, it kind of makes sense that somebody that is like so troubled would also have these you know like artistic kind of inclinations going on um mm -hmm. so yeah uh, well he is a, in some ways a very similar life story to somebody like malcolm x i mean his crime of choice was rape instead of theft but he went to prison he had this opportunity to read stuff that he had never had the opportunity to read before living like a hustling lifestyle you know just like riding the edge of, uh, of poverty and ruination and i mean this is sort of an inherent uh i mean you even see it in the in the book that that guy love love chief the the teacher that comes you know he he's very very popular and eventually the prison has to slowly remove him because there really is a genuine potential for radicalization inside of prisons mm -hmm. because you are actually like you you are taking away the day-to-day -day concern with subsistence that marks the lives of a lot of black people and prevents radicalization and then they go somewhere they don't have a lot of freedom and you can kind of control what 
certain things that they're allowed to read and not to read. But, you know, they're going to get their hands on stuff and they're now they're going to have three square meals a day and they're going to have the the time and the alone time to 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 read what has, you know, what, what they have not had time to previously. So, the mm. I mean, there is there is something about like prison that has the, the possible to radicalize people. But, you know, Malcolm X was just clearly like, you know, he especially toward the end of his life after he had uh embraced i guess like re real islam or whatever and envisioned this multiracial coalition of like love and reconciliation and, and and blah 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 i mean he just clearly was the superior rhetorician and political tactician and you know he and i mean there's a reason that the that that he got killed and eldridge cleaver did not you know, mm -hmm. despite the fact that both of them defected from the nation of Islam, mm -hmm. you know, there's the, the, there's a reason that, you know, he, I mean, he just, you know, like artists are like inherently a little bit clownish, you know, like the, the there is a, an immaturity that marks most artists and, and, and that would prevent them from being effective political leaders, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 but he, he thought he could do both. And in, in the end, he ended up doing neither. Mm -hmm. You know, he thought that he could be both like a brilliant thinker and a brilliant writer and uh, 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 and, and a leader of men. And in the end, he wasn't really any good at any of it. And he definitely wasn't going to be he definitely wasn't going to be a leader, but he could have been an excellent to great writer if he had like, you know, gotten over some of his psychosexual hang ups and stopped like cosplaying as a as a revolution. I mean, I guess he I guess he was actually trying to lead a revolution. So it wasn't cosplay, but it was effectively cosplay because it didn't go anywhere. You know, mm -hmm. like it, it, it's so. I don't know. It, I, it's an interesting book. I'm not like sad that I read it. Uh, it certainly could not have the effect uh, on me that it had on you as a young person. Imagine that it did. Imagine yeah. that it did. Right. I imagine your life was transformed right now. Yeah. No. My 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 transformative thing was uh, uh, another very flawed work uh, was seeing the movie There Will Be Blood when I was 18, mm -hmm. just because that was the first. That was really the first movie I ever saw. Like, it, it's not a that that was trying to do something more. You know, I now know as a as a as a more venerable scholar of the cinema that it uh, it, it it fails in a lot 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 of ways. It's not nearly as good as it thinks it is, nor as it was portrayed at the time. But it it did open up the possibility that like a movie could be like it could contain something more than just like. The, the normal things that a movie contains that you that you pay eight dollars for you know it, it didn't just have to be a superhero movie or whatever that movie and oddly enough the movie ratatouille were both mm -hmm. uh, that for me in the sense that they spurred me to start seeking out uh you know they spurred me to start seeking out more and more and more movies and find more stuff that contained those kind of qualities that i identified in those two movies that i wanted to to experience again basically you know so uh but i, I wouldn't do a show about there with the blood because there's not nearly as much to talk about <laughs> yeah. i i started i started making ratatouille all the time after the movie came out so it also had ratatouille's good on. man yeah that with nice uh vegetable heavy stew yeah over 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 couscous over yes. like a couscous that you make with um you know like any one of those like uh seasoning things where it's like i don't know like trader joe's like 21 seasoning salute like whatever it is just dump that into the water butter 
perfect couscous, right? Like nice and salty, like a little bit of like onion and pepper. Yeah. Um, I mean, objectively, that's how people should be eating, right? Like large quantities of vegetables, like a small mm-hmm. quantity of grains. And then occasionally you can have, uh, what's the meme? You can have little of meat as a treat. You know, mm-hmm. that's... Uh, but you know, it's hard, 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 harder to to wean, hard to wean people off of meat. I must, I must say, that's one of the things that quashes my hope. Yeah. Well, All right. Anyway, so, let's move on to the show. Yeah. So we're gonna transition to the patron show. Thank you guys for watching the watching thus far. Um, like, subscribe, and we will see you again quite soon.